Jesus. Uh, it's in the study of the Gospel of John. Meet Jesus so that you would believe. And we're going to continue in chapter 15, starting in verse 18. And what I'm going to do, it's a long passage. We'll go from verse 18 in chapter 15 to chapter 16, the end of it, okay? And this is what's known as, as Jesus' farewell discourse. His farewell discourse this is where he is taking time. He knows that, Jesus knows that he's, he's going to uh, die, and he knows that he's going back to the Father. And so before he does that, he is basically giving his final words, his um, his. The, the things that he wants them to know to prepare them in advance for his death and ultimately for his resurrection. This is what he wants to say uh, to his closest disciples. It's called his farewell discourse. And it's going to be a, a longer passage. And what I'll do is I'll actually break it up into four parts. Uh, you can call it four mini sermons, if you will, about 45 minutes each. Okay? And then, no, that's, it won't be. <laughs> I hope it won't be that long. Four parts, though, and I'll read each section. For each part. Let me pray for our time before we get started. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would um, fill us with your spirit and open our hearts and our minds to understand your word. I pray that your spirit would illuminate meaning in your text, apply it to our hearts in ways that, that we can see you more clearly, that we uh, can trust you, that we can um, depend on you, that we can believe your word. And uh, Father, I pray that you would do that work uh, in us this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Uh, when I was little, I remember, uh, I remember uh, little, maybe five, six, seven years old, I would have these, these nightmares. And and they were, I, I mean, I still remember them. Some of them, some of the nightmares I remember, like, the actual content. I, I played uh, Mario Brothers for a, a, a while, and, and would, you know, before I knew what binging was, I was binging on Mario Brothers, and, and there's this uh, character, uh, Koopa, King Koopa. And, and I remember uh, getting to the final lair of, of the Mario Brothers 1, and and keep fa- I kept facing Koopa, never able to beat him. And when, when I played like all night one night, my mom let me do that. I don't know why, but I did. And then um, the next night, uh, I had like a, a nightmare about it. Like King Koopa was in my dream. He was spewing fire like at me. And it was sort of connected to like Satan and stuff. Like I knew about the Bible. And I knew about like demons and whatnot, and it was just scary. And, and those were the types of dreams and nightmares I had that were just so terrifying. And, and I remember my instinct, I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I would want to go to my mom. And I would knock on her door, and I would go in. And I wasn't thinking about I was interrupting her sleep, by the way. I had no concept of that. I was just like, mom's going to take care of me. And it wasn't that I believed that she was going to take the nightmares away. But it was the fact that she was there that was comforting. It was her presence. It was her assurance that no matter what nightmares you're having, I'm there with you. I love you. I care for you. These nightmares don't have power over you. 
And so the next time you have a nightmare, remember, I love you, I care for you, I'm with you. These nightmares don't have power over you. There's something comforting. There's something peaceful uh, about presence of, of, of people we, we love and people we look up to. And in this, pe- this passage, what I want to bring out is this idea uh, of the presence of God. The presence of God who, who brings peace, who brings comfort, even in the midst of troublesome times. This passage, Jesus um, starts off by talking about some trouble that the world brings. And, and what I want us to think through is, how does God meet us in the midst of this trouble? How do we see, know, understand God's presence in the midst of trouble? In life, there are things that seem like nightmares, only we can't wake up from them. They're true. And in the midst of these real nightmares that we have, these, these very real troublesome times that, that seem to want to overcome us, how do we cope in the midst of those things? How do we understand God's comfort for us in the midst of not just dreams that you wake up from, but reality that you can't seem to wake up from. That's what I want to talk about this morning. In order to set the context, the, the first section, part one, is I've called the world brings trouble. The world brings trouble. And, and Jesus in his last words to his disciples, wanting his disciples to understand the reality of what his disciples will face. So I'm going to read, and, and you, you can go ahead and just stay seated. It's going to, these are long sections. So starting in verse 18, chapter 15. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you 
to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In some circles of Christianity, there's this false notion that, that when I come to Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, all of a sudden life will get better. Like in every way. Materially, health-wise, relationship-wise, like everything just gets better. It's just up and up, up and away. And if it's not, it's because you don't have enough faith, right? And, and it's, just, it's just wrong, like, when you look at Scripture, Jesus is teaching the opposite. So when you come to me, here's what's going to happen. You, guess what? They hated me. They're going to hate you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. A servant is not greater than his master. So what can we expect if we serve Jesus and Jesus himself was persecuted? We can also expect persecution. We can also expect hate to be directed our ways. Now, why does Jesus say this? Why does Jesus tell us this? He he, he says it in verse 1 of chapter 16. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He's, He's warning us that he's trying to reset our expectations so that when we do get trouble on account of Jesus' name, we won't be surprised that it's happening. Does that make sense? Now, here we are in in Western world, in the United States of America, and we're like, well, are are we experiencing persecution? It's a good question. Certainly, his disciples, he was, this is, by the way, the immediate um, application is for his immediate disciples that he's talking to. That's the immediate application. They will suffer up to and including the loss of their life. Most of Jesus' disciples were killed because of their belief in Jesus. And so this is not just theoretical. This is not just what might happen. Jesus is saying, this will happen and be ready so we say, does that happen today? Well, if we get beyond our context of just the United States, if we look worldwide, absolutely this still happens today. According to Open Door or Open Doors, it's a Christian nonprofit that specializes in tracking persecution around the world. 260 million Christians around the world live in what they call um, under high levels of persecution. Uh, and what that means, it means um, things that, that significantly alter your life, whether it's um, uh, losing your job because of your faith, being ostracized from your family because of your faith, uh, threats of violence because of your faith, threats of death because of your faith, that, that 265, or sorry, 260 million people in the world daily live with that kind of threat, with that kind of risk. 
In addition, uh, in the last year for which this was tracked, uh, nearly 3,000 Christians were killed for their faith. Lives lost because they believed in Jesus. Uh, 9,500 churches and other church-related buildings were vandalized or attacked in the last year. In addition, 3,700 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned on account of their faith. There are places where the persecution is very real, and it's very much uh, very similar to what we see in Scripture. The same types of things that they were doing to Jesus' disciples, they are doing to his disciples here in the world and other parts of the world. I don't know if you remember last Easter, just last Easter in Sri Lanka, uh, suicide bombers blew up or, or they, set, they detonated themselves. It was a, um, a suicide mission. Three churches on Easter survey, during ser- service, um, 259 people were killed. 259 people were killed. Now, these suicide bombers happen to be uh, militant, uh, 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 they believed in a form of militant Islam. And so they believed that they were doing God a favor, doing God a service by blowing themselves up and, and, and killing Christians. And it's interesting, Jesus says like the same thing here. He says uh, in verse 3 of chapter, sorry, verse 2 of chapter 16, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. This hate continues today. Now, here in the United States, it's not often in the form of, you know, we don't often as believers live under threat of being killed. So that's not not the type of persecution that we typically face. Now, what is the type of persecution that we face? Now, I might not call it persecution, because a lot of times when you hear persecution, people think, oh, that means you're under threat of death or severe bodily injury. Um, but I would call it anti-Christian bias. I would call it um, mockery. I would call it discrimination. And there's people who've looked at that, and, and they've done surveys, and they've done studies. There's a, a sociologist at Baylor University named George Yancey who's who studied this, and he, he calls it, uh, I don't know if he invented this term, but it's uh, Christianophobia. Right? It's this, this uh, unwarranted, unreasonable hatred and fear of Christian. He did a survey, it says 32% of all Americans like conservative Christians significantly less than other social groups. And, and he did these surveys where he, he, he received different... Uh, uh, responses that sort of um, <clears throat> that validated this this bias that that does exist in our world, and you, you can see it in in media, you can see it uh, in academia. I don't know if you've you've been to school. When I was in university, it was still that way. You know, I was the one in philosophy cr- class who was arguing for the existence of God, and you would see in other people's responses, and sometimes even the teacher's response. I remember. In a speech class, I, I did a, a, a speech on uh, that was uh, pro-life, and that was my that was my speech. And my my teacher was definitely not pro-life. 
she had a Howard Dean cup like on her desk. Um, and she was like probably going to rally like for that, <laughs> for, for him like that year. It was around that time. And, uh, and I don't think I saw that cup until after I chose the topic. And I thought, oh man, she's going to dock me for, for whatever I do. Even if I do great on this speech, like she's just going to, and, 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 and she did, she kind of critiqued me in a way that it felt like it was unwarranted. It was coming from her beliefs that were against what I was espousing in the speech. And it was interesting to see when she, one time she critiqued me in the middle of the class, and it just seemed sort of unwarranted. And someone else, another student, sort of caught on to that, and they said, wait a minute, but actually, uh, it seems like he did this technique in the speech according to the book. And I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> and, and, you and it was like, oh, God was vindicating me in that moment. We face bias all the time. Here in this world, my, my brother, a year and a half years younger than me, we both were taught about Jesus growing up. And we used to be able to have conversations about spiritual things in a way that felt like it was good. It felt like I was able to share with them, I was able to teach, I was able to um, help us learn more about God. But at some point, that changed. He stopped believing if he ever believed. And I, I started to see on Instagram posts from, from him that were just very much atheistic, very much anti-God. And I would try to interact with him reasonably, saying, have you considered this? Have you looked at the evidence for the resurrection? Um, uh, do you find it uh, interesting that you know so many billions of people have faith on, on the world? And and he basically, in so many words, called me a fool. My own brother. And, and, and at first I felt like, wow, he's, why is he attacking me? I'm not attacking him. I'm just trying to have a dialogue. And he's not even, he's just attacking me. He said, you are a fool for believing this. And I'm thinking, wow, my own brother. I'm getting hate from my own brother. Now, how do I respond to that? At first, I thought, well, maybe I'm not making good enough arguments. Maybe I've got to make better arguments. If I can just get the right logic into him, then he'll see, he'll understand that, that God is true and that God loves him and that, that he can be saved. And then God brought to my remembrance basically this. If, if they hated me, they'll hate you. And, and guess who was the best presenter of the gospel ever? Jesus. Like, Jesus' logic wasn't off. His presentation wasn't faulty. It was perfect. He demonstrated it with power. He demonstrated it with love. He demonstrated it with concern and care. He brought all of himself to the equation, and yet still people rejected Jesus. And when I thought about it, that was really encouraging to me to know that, no, it's not. Yeah, sometimes we, we get stuff wrong, or, or maybe we could say things a better way, but ultimately, sometimes people just reject Jesus because they just reject Jesus. They're not rejecting you. They're, there's nothing wrong with your logic. There's nothing wrong with, with what you're sharing. It's just that they just don't love Jesus. 
And that's just the reality that we have to understand as believers, and it will affect us. And it will affect us in proportion to the amount that we are vocal about who we are. Like if you want to go about life and not be persecuted and not be mocked and and not be looked uh, sideways, just don't talk about your faith. You You could do that. And you won't get you won't get what Jesus is talking about. But if you do talk about your faith, if you are vocal about what you believe, if you do try to share the gospel, sometimes you'll get hate back. Sometimes you'll get mockery. Sometimes you'll get, sometimes you'll know you they won't say it, but you know they're looking at you sideways, right? They know they think, okay, they're not saying it, but you're a fool for believing that. And I think in this culture, that's kind of more what we experience. And who knows where we are 100 years from now, or maybe even 50 years from now. Things change. And so what do we do in the midst of this? Well, number one, we listen to what Jesus says. I'm telling you this, verse 1, to keep you from falling away. In other words, there's the temptation, right? When we face mockery and we know that the, the, the powers that be, the media, the culture, uh, academia, is sort of against what we believe, like we better be sure we believe that or there's going to be temptation to leave it, to leave it aside, right? If, if I can choose path of comfort and everyone likes me or discomfort and everyone hates me, um, all things being equal, I'm going to choose the path of comfort and everyone likes me unless this is true, unless this is deeper, unless this is more meaningful, unless this gives me something that the world can't give me. Jesus says, remember this, verse 4, I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He's, he's setting the context. Don't be, uh, and First Peter says this, which basically is Peter wrestling with uh, what Jesus has already said. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So don't, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to us, but rather rejoice. And I'm going to look at that idea of rejoicing in, the, in part three, okay? Because that's, that's a weird response, right? You have a trial, you have a fiery trial even, rejoice. I don't, I don't know if I can just get there. I, I need some help getting there, and so I want to, I want to look at that. Now, in the midst of trouble, uh, not only do we need Jesus reassuring words, not only do we need to understand that that's what we can expect, um, but he leaves us with his presence in the form of the person of the Holy Spirit. So we don't just get his words, we get his presence. And that's the part two is what I'm going to look at. Uh, Chapter 16, verses, uh, the second part of verse 4 through verse 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, 
And none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And here, Jesus uh, talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's an interesting spot because here, Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. You're going to have persecution. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have hate come your way. And by the way, I'm leaving. Right? I mean, that's, that's like, wait a minute. If, if you're in the disciples' shoes, you're hearing this, and Jesus says, I'm, I'm leaving now. And so, rightfully, they're sorrowful. But he says, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, who, who's from the Father. I'm sending him from the Father, from the Spirit, and he's a person. Holy Spirit is referred to as a he. And you see the, the Trinity at work in this passage in particular in an interesting way. They kind of do different roles, but they all work together. Now, before I talk about the Holy Spirit, it's important to understand that the presence of God is something that uh, has been demonstrated throughout all of Scripture. It's an important aspect of our belief in God that we don't have a God who just, um, who just writes us a letter and, and, and then is some far-off like deity. We have a God who, uh, some, some people, there's a philosophy called deism. And it was this idea they believed in a God, but it was more like someone who winds up a clock. Right? They, wind it, they wound it up, and then they just let it go, and they step away, and they never enter that world again. Like That's, that's not the God of the Bible. From the beginning, even, even in the garden, you have this picture of God walking through the garden. And, and, and you continue to see God, a very intimate picture. Like It starts there in the garden. God has this great relationship with Adam and Eve. And then they sin, but God's still in the garden. And even after they sin, he has some consequences, but then he closes them. Again, another picture of God's presence, his comfort, his provision. And you see that through all out of Scripture. God comes in the form, uh, he, he sends his angels, his messengers, to give, him, uh, to give them, to give us his words. And then you get this picture that happens uh, where Jacob wrestles with God. Which is really interesting. And you have the picture in, in the, the Exodus where you have the, the clouds and the pillar of fire where God's presence is with his people. And so you see God's presence throughout all of Scripture. And it, it, it's all moving towards this, this sort of ultimate presence in the person of Jesus. 
where you have something called the incarnation, like the infleshing of God in the person of Jesus. Jesus comes in the flesh, his presence tangible, his presence um, you can see, you can hear, you can experience. So Jesus, um, the presence of God is important to God, and it, is, it comes uh, in its full manifestation in the person of Jesus, in his incarnation. And so when Jesus says he's going to leave, he's saying, I'm not going to leave you alone. Right? I'm not going to deviate from the script I've been writing. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is actually, it's going to be to your advantage that I leave. It's going to be better that I leave because the Holy Spirit is coming. Now, why? Why would it be better for Jesus to leave? It has to do with what he says the Holy Spirit is going to do. He says when he comes, when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I want to emphasize that. He will convict the world. Like Jesus' ministry was actually fairly limited geographically. He didn't travel very far. He didn't go to Europe. Like he didn't go to the what today we call North America. Like he didn't go very far. But he said the spirit would. He said the spirit's ministry would be global. The conviction would be global. It would be about sin, it would be about righteousness, it would be about judgment. Sin that we are sinful, but that Jesus is the one who can pay for our sins. About righteousness, to show us uh, that Jesus uh, doesn't have to personally sort of do teachings all the time, that the Holy Spirit would come and globally remind the world of what Jesus taught us and how to live in righteousness. And judgment here is not judgment of people, but but judgment of the ruler of the world, which is the, the Satan, the enemy. That ultimately evil is judged. It is and continues to be and will be judged forever. Like this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit on a global scale. And that's why it's to our advantage that Jesus goes because now his ministry is going to go global. And so we have the presence of the Holy Spirit who's called the helper. He helps us. Jesus says, I want you to be helped and I'm giving you the helper now, I was thinking about this. How do I believe that? It's easier for me to believe if Jesus is standing right there in the flesh and looking, looking me in the eye. And yet, even still, some people didn't believe, right? But it is easier if Jesus is right here. If he was the one up here teaching today, I think it would be easier for us to believe Jesus leaves and now gives us a Holy Spirit who is not flesh. We can't see him, and yet he's still working. How do we know that? Well, ultimately, we know by faith. We trust on his words, God's words to us, his ministry. But I would say we see the effects of the ministry of the Spirit. What Jesus is doing is subtly uh, predicting what would happen. Which, if you're sitting in the disciples' shoes at that time, it's, uh, it's not a foregone conclusion 
that this little religion they have is going to be anything more, anything outside of their immediate context. But what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit is coming and he's going to expand this mission globally, which is a huge promise, a huge prediction that can be tested and has been tested. You look around the world today, like, has this come true? Has the ministry of the Holy Spirit worked globally to tell the world about sin, to tell the world about righteousness, and to tell the world about judgment? It absolutely has. Regardless of whether or not you believe in Jesus or not, his influence is unparalleled. His influence is inarguable. And what Jesus is saying is that influence, that actual outworking that has changed the lives of billions of people, the course of history is the work of the Spirit. We can see, we can look at, we can read about the effects of the Spirit throughout history. Jesus has kept his word. What he said would happen has happened. And so as a, as a believer, as someone who's maybe even wrestling with, do, do I believe that the, that the presence of the Spirit is with me? We can go back and look at Jesus' words, and we can look at history, and we can see it seems that Jesus is fulfilling his promises. It seems that what God said would happen, what Jesus said would happen, has happened. And therefore, even if I can't see him or feel him, I can see his works. I can see the effects of his work, and I can trust that he is continuing to work uh, globally, but also within our lives. He's here with us. He's teaching us. He reveals things to us. Even as we read his word, he applies his word to our hearts in ways that we would not be able to apart from the power of the Holy Spirit because that's his ministry. And Jesus says, I'm sending him to you for your good to help you, to help us. We need him. Jesus refers to the spirit as the spirit of truth. We read that uh, he, will, he will lead you into all truth. And in the face of trouble, what we need is truth. Because the things that, that we are tempted to go towards are lies. If we're facing hardship, we're facing mockery, we're facing coronavirus, right? the questions are going to be, is God good in the midst of this? Does God care in the midst of this? Is God absentee in the midst of this? And the Holy Spirit leads us to the truth that, that God loves us, God cares, God is with us in the midst of this. We believe that by faith. We do see the effects of what he's done, but we believe by faith that he is with us. He's the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is for us. So we need truth. But more than truth, we also need joy. We need truth, what's right, what's correct, what's real. But joy is an important part of the equation. It's an important part of what makes life um, flavorful. What makes life desirable. Joy. It's important. 
And that's the third part. Part two was the Spirit brings truth. Part three is the Father brings joy. I'm going to read verses 16 through 24. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So they are sorrowful. Jesus is saying he's going away. And he tells them, you are sorrowful now but it will be turned to joy. And he gives the analogy of a woman approaching childbirth, one I'm familiar with, specifically Stephanie. And it's interesting, having just recently been through that, um, to see kind of an experience as firsthand as I can experience it. The, the, The hour coming, childbirth. And, and so Stephanie went into it uh, not having any a particular perspective on pain medications. Like, well, we'll just see. See how it goes. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. And so contractions started Thursday night. Um, water breaks early Friday morning. We go into the hospital. Um, contractions pause for a little bit, and then they restart. And so we're walking around the hospital, because that's what they recommend. You walk around and get things going. And, and so we're walking, and every now and then we stop, and, you know, and she has the pains, and I'm just, you know, trying to comfort her in whatever way I could comfort her. And as these things go, they escalate, right? And uh, it was sort of like, and I think she would say this, it wasn't that any one contraction was just like, off the charts, intense. They were all intense, but they just sort of one after another, after another, after another. And by 9.30 at night, I could look into her eyes, and I knew the answer was, get me the pain medication. Her hour had come. 
and it was painful. And, and to see her at that point, I'm like, wow, this is what they're talking about, right? This is what Jesus is talking about. Like, I don't want to have to go through that. Not by choice. Not for funsies, right? The point is, there's a reason why she goes through that. The reason is for the joy of the child who was born. That's why you go through something like that. No one chooses to go through pain like that. Like, sign me up for contractions for hours and hours and hours, right? No one says that. And yet, as I'm sitting there and, and Stephanie's giving birth, I'm overcome with joy. Like, it's a miracle that happens. And it doesn't mean that after that everything is great and hunky-dory. It was, it was for like one and a half days. And then it was. But there was joy. There was a miracle in our midst. And, it, it, and, and, and Jesus says she forgets about her anguish. Right? We, let me tell you this. It's not that you don't remember it. It's not like you can't recall it. Right? But this is what, it, this is what I think he means. Since Stephanie has given birth, she doesn't talk to me every day about how bad her contractions were. You get what I'm saying? Like, she's moved past that. We're talking about sleep now. Right? That's what we're talking about. But the, 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 the pain that was very hard and very real and, and cut off, thank God, by modern medicine, she's moved beyond that. We're raising a human being now. There's something that's more real in the midst than the pain that was. And that's what Jesus is saying about their sorrow. Yeah, their sorrow is very real now, but there's going to be a point where that sorrow changes to joy. And it's a future hope that we have in Christ, that he is bringing joy in the midst of pain. And where does this joy come from? comes from Jesus for sure, but he says something interesting. He says it also comes from the Father. Give me a moment to get back to it. There we go. Uh, verse 22, so, now, so also you have jo- uh, sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, will rejoice, future. No one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. What he's saying is, the Father himself wants you to be full of joy. And he wants that joy to be so sticky, so rooted that no one can take that joy away. This is the Father's aim. And he's saying that the, the way to that joy is to ask him. We can ask the Father in Jesus' name, and what we're asking is given to us so that our joy may be full. Later, Jesus says, In verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your, on your behalf. Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. It's the love of God 
that motivates him towards us, that he wants joy for us. He wants, he wants us to be happy, to put it another way. He, want, he wants us more than just to believe and understand who he is. He wants us to understand that he's a giver of good things, that he's a giver of joy for our lives. Now, it's one thing to say that, right? To say, this is what God does. He gives us joy. And it's another thing to experience that or to believe that, to accept it, to receive that. And I think to understand joy and, and the joy that the Father brings, we need to understand uh, part four, uh, which is the peace that the Son brings. The Son brings peace. Peace and joy are often related in Scripture. Where you see joy, you often see a promise of peace, whether it's the Psalms or wherever, prophetic writings. You're going to rejoice, but there's also going to be peace. Because I think ultimately we need that foundation of peace for that joy to be sticky, for that joy to be lasting forever. And so I want to look at what this peace is that Jesus brings, because I think this ties in everything together. And so let me read uh, verses 25 through 33, but we'll really focus uh, on that last verse. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask me in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have Love me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this section, Jesus plainly tells them where he's going. Um, he tells them where he's going. I'm going back to the Father. They respond in belief. Say, oh, we believe you're the one. Jesus says, well, not quite. You're going to scatter first. But then ultimately they'll believe. Now, he concludes with this incredible promise of peace in verse 33. He says, I've said these things to you, all these things as he's been talking about. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then he says, the same verse, in the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Now here is where we can go wrong in understanding what he means by peace. I think sometimes... When I hear peace, I think of, like, a bubble bath with a glass of wine. That sounds peaceful to me. 
That's not what he's talking about. Just, just to be clear, he's not talking about primarily like a feeling, like this feeling of peace and comfort and relaxation. And sometimes that's what we think when he says peace, and so that when we don't feel that, we're like, I don't have his peace, right? I don't have peace. I don't feel like I'm in a warm bubble bath right now. I feel scattered. I feel uh, angry. I feel fearful. I don't have peace right now. And Jesus answers it. He, he, he answers that false notion of peace by what he says right after this. He says, I want you to, I'm saying all these things to you so that in me you'll have peace. And we're like, okay, great, bubble baths and warm, calm relaxation. And he says, in this world you'll have tribulation. Okay, so he's not talking about that. So in this world you have tribulation. He's kind of articulates what some of that tribulation is. Just because we are Jesus followers, there's going to be people who don't like Jesus followers. Just as they didn't like Jesus That is a lack of external peace, but in him we can have peace, but it's not related to our feelings, and it's not related to our circumstances. In other words, he's saying, in fact, the opposite, you're going to be in unpeaceful circumstances. You're in the world, you're going to have tribulation. It's going to be around you, but in the midst of it, you can have peace. What is that peace? He says this after, after he says there's tribulation in the world. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart. It's this idea of um, be encouraged or, or be courageous, be confident. Take heart, I have overcome the world. You are in the world right now. We are in the world in the midst of tribulation. In him we can have peace, but take heart in the midst of tribulation that he has overcome the world. In other words, it's forward-looking. I've overcome it. In other words, I've undone the power behind it so that the world doesn't need to overcome us. He's victorious over all that oppresses us, all that is painful, all that would harm us, all that would threaten to rob us of his peace. Jesus is in authority over it. He says, I've overcome it. And what it takes is the ability to take him at his word and believe that what he says is true will will prove out to be completely true in the future. So when he talks about peace, he's talking about a peace that's based on faith. And the truth, the peace that Jesus offered us, the peace of his presence is only and ever accessed by faith. The peace of the presence of God is only and ever accessed by faith. It's the only way to make sense of what he's saying. He's saying, you're going to have tribulation in the here and now. That's true. But in me, in the here and now, you can have peace. How? By faith. Trusting that he has overcome the world. Trusting that he will one day do away with all that plagues us, with all that, that, that affects us. Even our feelings, our circumstances, coronavirus, 
death, disease, mockery, hate, job loss, relationship issues, all the things we struggle with where we think, I don't have peace because of these things, Jesus has said, take heart, I've overcome that world. There's a new world coming, and if we believe him in the midst of it, what we have is not feelings or changed circumstances. What we have is confidence that despite our circumstance, despite our feelings, God is victorious in Jesus, and therefore I am victorious in Jesus. I'm good. I'm okay. I may feel like I'm shattered in a thousand pieces, but I am Christ. And Paul says the same thing in his own words in Romans chapter 14, verse 8. He says this, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And what Paul is saying, regardless of what happens in this life, the point is, the foundation that he rests on is that he is the Lord's. And that is accessed by faith. That's the type of peace that we have in Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not giving you the peace as the world gives you. The peace that the world gives you says, I'm going to sell you a trinket that's going to make you happy. I'm going to give you better bubble bath for your, bubble, for your bath. Right? That's the, the peace the world offers is all circumstantial or it's feeling-based. I'll give you this drug that will make you feel better. The peace that Jesus gives us is different. It's a rooted confidence that's accessed only and ever by faith so that in the midst of everything seeming like they're going wrong, you can be rock solid and stand on his word. One day, all these things will change. That is our hope, that we're not destined for eternal suffering, eternal pain, eternal brokenness, that God has solved the root of the brokenness, and that he's bringing us to a place of wholeness in him. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to think of peace like that. And if there's anything I want us to pray for is faith, to believe the peace that Jesus offers us. We have his presence. Like he, he, he sent, God sent his son into the world. Presence is an important thing to God. And he gives us now his Holy Spirit who's at work right now in our lives, in our hearts, to bring us to the truth so that we would have faith in what he said, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. And so let me pray for us. We are not alone. Father, we thank you that we are not alone, that your very presence is comforting, that your very presence is helpful, that your very presence is enough to get us through the troubles that we have in this world. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to believe. Lord, your word says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, we just want to hear your word. And Lord, would you bring faith as we hear your word? Would we take your words at face value? Would you help us to discern and see the ways that you've been moving in history and the ways that you've been moving in our lives? 
And Lord, I just pray for anyone who has been struggling, Lord, with circumstances in their lives that seem overwhelming, that seem anxiety-producing. Lord, those who have been sorrowful, those who have been sad, those who have been fearful, depressed. Lord, I ask that you would meet us this morning and that on the basis of your word, your truth, your promises, that you've overcome, that we would be able to take heart, that we would be able to be encouraged in your truth. You will come again. You will judge the living and the dead. Lord, you will make all things new. You will set all things right. And you will rule in perfect righteousness and justice and love. Help us by faith to grab on to that vision, even in the midst of trouble. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, at this time,